You are listening to Keenan Live, where I'm going to be talking to the interesting, the rebellious, and the successful. People who do things that others just can't or won't. Hey, what's going on, peeps? It is Keenan. Listen, welcome to Keenan Live One. What is Keenan Live? Look, Keenan Live is about. I'm going to be talking to the interesting, the rebellious, and the successful. And the whole point of this is to bring a podcast to get you guys thinking and exploring and meeting new people that are making impact. And in my opinion, if you're not interesting, if you are not rebellious, then you cannot be successful. So I am pumped about this. This is going to be an amazing time. My first guest today for Keenan Live One are the Winklevoss twins. Right. Let me tell you. Oh my goodness gracious! Let me change something. Already, I'm having problems. Look at that. Right out of the gate, we gotta fix this. All right. Hope this doesn't change. Hope you can hear me okay. Is the Wiggle Boss Twins? You know them from the Social Network movie. You may know them from the news. You may know them from the book Bitcoin Billionaires. And if you don't know them, you're gonna know them from today. So I'm excited to bring them on. Um, Cameron and Tyler are some interesting cats. I'll tell you the truth, right? I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, learned about them through the movie social network of all things. Right. But then got to know them mobile scheming. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. So let me get them in here and we can have a field day. Let me see how, let me see this. Let me get them in here. Oh my goodness gracious. Let's welcome Calvin Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. What's up, boys? Can you hear me? Hey, Jim. Yeah. Oh, what? It works. It works crazy. It's just crazy. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having us. All right. So I just got to start right out of the gate, right out of the gate. What the fuck happened at Harvard? Gee, that's a, it's a big question. First of all, I'm Cameron. I'm got the Keenan shirt on. This is Tyler. I'm the left-handed twin. Not that it matters for this, this live cast, I guess. Oh, I want to talk about that. Like, all right. So, so I'm going to come back to what the fuck happened, but I want to talk about that. So, so from what I understand, um, identical twins, which we all know are when the cell single cell splits. But I right. didn't know that in the gestation period that it has to split by a certain time. And the reason that you have conjoined twins, that shit started splitting too late and couldn't finish the process. Is that accurate? I think, yeah, that's right. I think something like instead of the egg splitting like that, I think it splits sort of like that. And we're what's called mirror image twins. And I think about 25% of twins are mirror image twins. Most people don't know that, but it's, it's a real thing. And so we're that. If you don't split, we'd be Siamese twins, right? So, so, yeah. so the truth of the matter is, you, you came really, really close to being Siamese twins. Yeah, is the point. We have a star down. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's uh, mirror. It splits like at the final point, righty, lefty. Um, whereas fraternal, I think, is two different eggs. They never, there's no slitting. So there's no slitting. So, um, yeah, that's how that's mirror, mirror twins. 
So is that is that true though that that you split much later in the process and that you actually could have been that it stuck slow? You might have come this close to actually being literally connected. I think that's yeah. accurate. Yeah, Dude, that's crazy. <laughs> Though sometimes it seems like we're Siamese twins. I mean, we are like attached to the hip. And we yes. Work you together, are. Similar interests and stuff. We are different people though. You know that. Yes. But I think, I, I think that's crazy though. But like, you know, you hear those stories about people, you know, saying they, they were about, you know, sorry, they were, they forgot something in the house. They ran inside and they ended up not getting into a car accident. You know what I'm saying? Like they tell all these near miss stories. And your near miss story is you two almost got stuck together for the whole entire life. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right, so you're left handed, Cameron, and you're right handed, Tyler. Correct. Tyler, so right handed. Your personalities. Well, I guess technically we use different sides of our brain. Um, you know, I guess Cameron might be a little bit more, he's a better drawer. Um, so, like with a pencil or crayons or whatever, watercolors. Uh, he's a better artist in that form of it. Um, but I guess we take turns in being like creative. You know, it's not like I'm not creative. It's just, I think he is a better drawer. Um, maybe a little more organized. Yeah, but on a relative scale, it's not like I'm disorganized. I'm just not as methodical as, yeah, we always get compared to each other. It's not like, so it's all relative. Um, Cameron plays electric guitar. We both grew up playing piano. I play piano today. He can play piano, but he doesn't put his time into it. And I've never really learned the guitar. Um, actually, Cameron's freshman roommate played guitar at Harvard, and that kind of got you excited, right? So like, yeah. oh, that's a great instrument. You can kind of carry it everywhere. Um, we we studied classical piano for uh, about 12 years since you know about the age we could count. <laughs> that's basically if you can count you can start to um uh play at least the first um teacher i had that was the first test like can you count um you know get the rhythm and then so we took piano growing up and then cameron got to college and acoustic guitar and that was really cool because you could have it in your dorm room you mm -hmm. can't really bring a piano to a dorm room um, so I guess that's why you you kind of got into it, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. It started there, uh, and so at Harvard, I guess. So we we entered Harvard in I guess the year of two thousand. So right after the dot com bubble. Oh yeah. So it was an interesting time. Startups weren't really in vogue. People were still thinking about like banking, you know, jobs after college in that sense. Startups were not where people were putting their their and the, the tech bubble had just happened. Oh yeah, I mean March April of two thousand, people had their ass handed to them. You know, yeah. I I'll never forget that because really this my poor mom she retired right this she retired in like ninety nine late ninety nine early two thousand and she had an early retirement from okay I guess I'll be nice I'm new so I won't say the name of the company but a big big telecom company she'd been there her whole life. Now she was she, she got about middle management is where she stuck, but she still had a sizable six figure like retirement. They did one of those early retirement things like take your money now and we'll let you go. So she took it, and her ass hat of a financial fucking advisor took the whole thing, the whole thing, and dumped it into a bunch of stocks in one day. And that day was like March third, two thousand. Wow. 
No cost average buying, right? No, like, like no spreading it out. So she literally lost like 40% of her net worth in like a month. Wow. I remember that. So yeah, right, as you were, gentlemen. Fucking crazy. Yeah, no, okay. So it's interesting time because computer science was the least popular major at Harvard at that time. Um, some people had left to go to Silicon Valley and, you know, sort of stopped out of school. Most of their projects had exploded. They were back. They were like uh, six years who you know, had left for a year or two. It didn't work out. So it was kind of like we started college in the wake of, you know, all of that basically the, the tech explosion. Um, so there wasn't really a lot of people going after entrepreneurial ideas and stuff. And in fact, there was much more cautionary tales than there were, were success stories. Obviously, fast forward, we went back to Harvard in 2012. Um, this is after the social network, obviously after Facebook, because Facebook launched in the winter of 2004. So our senior year, um, so four years after we started college, um, but then after Facebook, you know, kind of kicked off web 2.0 and social media that didn't exist, right? When we were in college, um, we went back to Harvard in 2012 and spoke to a group of students and computer science was the most popular, uh, major. So in a span of around 10 years, it, you know, went from the least popular, no one did it. What's that? Why would you ever do that kind of thing? Aren't you going to banking and trying to yeah. get a job at Goldman Sachs? Or aren't you going to go start a hedge fund like everyone else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like banking's dying. Like nobody wants to go to banking. Uh, hedge funds is a shrinking industry. Like everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are the new rock star. Like why don't you have a funded startup yet? You're still an undergrad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait, you went back in 2012. Was the president, was the guy that was president when you were there still there? He was not. Oh, I was going to say, did you punch him in the nose? <laughs> no, he, he had the shortest tenure of, uh, I think he was a five-year tenure. So by the time we went back in 2012, he was not. I'm not surprised. His leadership skills were shit. They were absolutely shit. <laughs> no Tell me, okay, what happened? Like, like everybody knows the story that you were building this story, that you were building this thing, and you asked Zuckerberg to help with the coding because one of your guys was graduating, if I remember correctly, right? And you just needed it finished. And Zuckerberg was, oh, yep, no. Yeah, so we wanted a better way to connect with students on campus. Um, Harvard's a really big school, but you can get into your bubble like anything in life. You know, you can be in New York City and do like the same little bubble thing and see the same people. Same thing with a college campus, especially when you're in Boston or Cambridge or on Boston, there's 50 different schools. And so we're spending all our time rowing, we're econ majors, you kind of see the same people. We wanted to connect with more people. And we thought internet, computers, social networking, at the time, Friendster was just yeah. the same. I remember them, yeah. There was no quality control. You signed up and it was kind of like, where are the people I actually know or might know? Um, so that's really what Harvard Connection, Connect You and Facebook did was build an identity in your real social network, like your Harvard friends online. Um, so we thought we could connect better with students at Harvard and the schools around by creating this. So we started that in actually 2002. Uh, we worked with a couple of programmers. One went to Google. Um, 
then graduated, sorry, he was at Harvard, graduated, went to Google. We found another programmer, eventually found our way to, to Mark, um, exchanged a bunch of emails over a period of a couple of months, and everything was going swimmingly, like I'm almost done, I'm almost done. And then all of a sudden, um, one day we pick up the, the Harvard student newspaper in the, um, the lunchroom. And it's like Facebook launched by Mark Zuckerberg. And we're like, is there two Mark Zuckerberg? Maybe he has a twin. Yeah. Um, and so we were like totally blown over. And that was kind of what led to like, okay, something wrong happened. What is it? You know, like if you like, if you like, maybe a breach of the student handbook because you can't plagiarize a paper, right? If you hand it in, your professor would would uh, you get in trouble. So like, can a student do the same thing to another student? Uh, we went to Summer's office hours. He was very dismissive. He basically said, go to the courts. Um, you know, this is a legal right, matter. You're being too nice. You're being too nice. You had to be fucking pissed because you guys have been working on this for like, what, a year or something? Eight months, seven months, like a while, right? It's like two years. I mean, I think shock, like the 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 feeling of, of I don't know. I'm sure you felt this. Everyone's felt it like a betrayal, sort of a shock. You're kind of like not even angry. You're like, oh, my God, how did, did, is this real? Um, and then sort of processing it and then trying to figure out how to right the wrong. So why did you like, OK, Cameron, you're supposedly a left handed, more, you know, more like free spirit. one. Did you ask not walk across campus and fucking kick his door down? Because that's what I would have done. You know, definitely crossed my mind. Oh. Uh, probably not the best way to, to solve a dispute. Um, at one point, Mark offered to to meet with with me. Um, but at that point, the ship had sort of sailed and we felt like, you know, look, I don't know what good is going to actually come of that. Um, but yeah, it was a tough it was a tough spring of uh, 04 when we kind of found out um, and they met with the president. That was like a pretty disappointing, as Todd mentioned, experience and then we were kind of left saying okay well the school doesn't really want to get involved even though we gave our code base to this guy and we believe he so, wait, 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 wait. you literally gave your code base to him he had the entire keys to our yeah he had root access to the code base wow. i don't think people know that that's one thing to say you exchange an idea and he went out he didn't say oh i didn't use the code base not the point not the point he had your actual code and he still did this shit and I think the, the, the other thing is the um, he was saying like I am a partner I'm working with you things are going well it'd be one thing if we had like one meeting and hey great idea but I'm gonna go do this myself good luck yeah but amen we got he sandbagged us for for three or four months which is the definition of fraud like misleading, yeah. knowingly misleading someone and that's really what the the case was about. Um, it really wasn't about IP or code as much. I mean, that was a part of it, but it really revolved around uh, the misleading, like knowingly saying to us, like, things are going well. And then also I am being a friend and being like, I'm going to, you know, tap those guys in the ear. Um, yeah, which, yeah, you can say it. Fuck them in the ear, baby. Fuck them in the ear. Say it. You know, uh, a leaked. Um, yeah, I don't know if this is a PG-13. Um, Who are you talking to? Come on, boys. Or no, who this is streaming out to. But um it was really around uh, sort of reaching a partnership, fraud, um, and unjust enrichment, which which could be anything, right? It could be a lemonade stand. Yeah, yeah you know what kills me on this? This is what kills me on this, guys. Tell me what you think about this, okay? 
First of all, I say all the time, I am unemployable now. Like, I don't know any company that can afford to pay me that would actually be able to hire me right now because I, I've been working on my own for so long and I just said this whole uh, approach to how the world works and I've gotten so sour with big corporations, right? What is it? Like, can people be successful and grow big businesses and, and be the top echelon without being a fucking complete douchebag, stabbing people in the back, playing the political game? Is that possible anymore? Or ever? Was it ever possible? I mean, look, I, I think it is. Um, we're trying to build our company that way. I think we're going to be proof of that. We are. Um, we grew up, our dad's an entrepreneur. We fucking build company and produce success as a self-made guy, never doing that kind of behavior. But unfortunately, um, that behavior does exist, and some people um, can get away with it and, and be successful. But it's, it's not something I would be proud of or, or even capable of, of doing. And so you got to live with yourself at the end of the day. Um, so, um, you know, you have to do it hopefully on your own terms in a way you're proud of. Um, and, and I do think there's a lot of examples. I'm sure, you know, some great examples, um, you know, even going to athletes, right? Like we know athletes who are amazing. They're the best athletes are also the nicest people. They're so gracious and they have so much grace and they help the younger people who are, you know, trying to get better. And then you know a lot of people who are like gold medals and they're just jerks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, true. But here's the deal. I know than like life's not fair, but yes. well, here's the deal. Sports, sports is a meritocracy, right? Sports is a meritocracy. So you don't have to be a douchebag to get to get ahead. You can just ski better than anybody else. You can just run faster. You can just play football better, right? But right. in the corporate world they say it's a meritocracy, but it's not completely a meritocracy. And when you look, even people I admire, like I'm watching this Inside Bill's Brain on, on what you call it. Have you been watching that on Netflix, those three series? No, I haven't seen Dope. it. Dope. You gotta watch it. And I'm convinced that Bill is because he's older, his, his whole mentality has shifted. But even Bill, who's all about saving the world, right? he spent hundreds of millions and billions of dollars on sewer treatment, on designing new toilets, on all kinds of crazy shit to make the world a better place, right? But when you guys had just started at Harvard, he was considered a douchebag because he was trying to corner the whole market with, you know, kicking Netscape to the curb and, and embedding, um, uh, I mean, Explorer into his, his operating system. And, and he, you know, he, he, he was ruthless, right? You look at some people talk about Jobs. Jobs was ruthless. I just, don't, I just I'm just always wondering, can you, can you be successful and take it to the next level? Without being ruthless, without fucking people over, like just being honest and saying, "Hey guys, I'm going to do my own thing." Good, hey guys, I'm going to do my own thing. Good luck, let's compete. No, I'm going to screw you over. You know what I'm done? I mean, Mark Zuckerberg went even a step further and tried to screw over the guy that gave him the money. Holy shit! Like, what type of personality do you have that this guy was in? Give you the fucking money to get off the ground, and then you get his ass thrown out of the company. Give him no equity. Who the fuck does that? I can't process this, guys. I can't process how people operate. Yeah, I think some people think they have to play the jerk every once in a while. And that that's required to be successful. And, and it's really not. I mean, I don't think Jeff Bezos has that reputation. Um, he's built the most valuable company in the world. So there is proof of, of those kind of folks out there. Um, and it, it feels like Warren Buffett um, can have a reputation. I mean, that guy's you know, buys companies and invests in companies. He's sort of like 
a hard guy, but he's so likable. Yet he is Richard Branson. Uh, lovable. Love Richard Branson. Oh, he, he's my. I, I get that guy. Yeah, I think it's it's possible. Um, but I think also those are gentlemen, and I'm sure there's women out there who value that. And there's just some people who don't. Um, so it's your decision, but uh, it's possible. So you know. So let's talk about that. Actually, I want to take this further. You learned a lot of this from your family and your dad, right? Your dad and your mom. Talk to, like, I think loyalty is a really big thing to me. Talk to me about your dad and, and the whole concept of loyalty and how that affected or impacted you guys. Yeah, well, he, so my parents are both self-made people. My dad comes from a line of coal miners in Pennsylvania. My mom's dad was a New York detective. Um, so humble backgrounds. Uh, dad's an entrepreneur, started the company, became a professor at Wharton um, of actual science, rural science, went off and built a company that consulted companies on their pension plans, and then eventually built software that consultants run, use to administer those pension plans. So it's a B2B business, um, had these ideas, um, and then put it into software, and then made, made a bet on the personal computer becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. That was uh, like a given, right? Um, and so built software for the idea that offices would have people in them that use personal computers. That's a good bet. <laughs> it worked, right? The future cooperated. Um, but in the 70s, the personal computer revolution, uh, universities had computers or some businesses were going to mainframe. It was very interesting. And people didn't have computers, they had typewriters, right? And so you had to bet that the typewriter was going to become um, personal computer. And so he did that and brought his work into software and built the company there. So we grew up in a startup. Um, our idea of like what we do when we grow up was to be entrepreneurs because that's the model we, we saw. We didn't grow up in a household where our dad was a doctor. Um, so maybe we'd be doc- you know, I think that has a big, big influence on you the environment uh, and the nurture that you're around. So we'd hang out to his office, read the computer magazines, hang out with the uh, computer coders and engineers. So um, we never doubted that we'd one day end up doing something like this. Rowing was actually this detour that ended up being 15 years, but um, you know, it was always sort of like this uh, side road, and we would get back on the name of the like. Was it your dad really, or was it your mom, or your family in general? But were they really um, um, sort of looking for? They really value driven, right? Like your family was real. Didn't your dad have a real sense of values about loyalty and how you treat people and all that stuff that really impressed you? Was that your mom? Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, both of them. That's a huge thing. Um, you know, like I said, they're. They're self-made people, hard work, um, loyalty. Like I think that the 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 whole Facebook saga was harder on my dad, and you know, for him to understand how that could happen. And I'll say the same for Divya, um, their parents. The idea that another student would do that, like we were sort of in it, so it was like shocking to us. But as a parent looking down, I think they were just blown over. So. You know, we all have a certain value set, like Divya, his parents, ourselves, um, integrity, doing the right thing for the sake of doing right. Um, you know, not a all cost kind of thing, no cutting corners, uh, not burning bridges. Because I think fundamentally, um, 
our parents and Divya's parents believe you can win inside the rules. You don't have to cheat to get ahead. And we don't believe that success is a zero-sum game. Oh. I don't have to, you don't have to lose for me to win. Amen. And that, that's the beauty of capitalism in our system is that the pie keeps getting bigger. We can keep growing more pie for ourselves and other people, uh, not at the expense at, uh, of others. And I think fundamentally that's philosophically what we, you know, myself and Cameron and as a family, we believe in that was the house we grew up in. That was the example that we saw, like we lived in it. We went into an office and we saw, you know, our dad um, restarted his company twice. So he started it once, sold it, then went off, then went off and started it again. So as, as kids, we saw, you know, something being built from nothing. And I never saw him take away or cheat anyone in um, in growing his company to being successful. I saw more people coming to work, more people uh, being employed, um, and just more like value and innovation created. And I didn't see it, it taken away from anybody else. So I think that's a very- and I think some a lot of people from the first company went to a second company, and a lot of those people were his students when he was a professor at uh, Wharton, so that following him. So people, if you have loyalty and integrity, people will follow you on that journey and work with you multiple times um, over multiple iterations and companies, which I think is important being a repeat. Look, I'm a huge advocate. Like I'm a sucker, right? I'm a sucker because I I just am a sucker for people. And um, so I'm full on you. It's interesting. I like what you said, Tyler, about this idea that capitalism isn't a zero sum game. I honestly believe that this is a battle that capitalism has been fighting since its inception. And up until about the 1920s, the, um, the concept of zero sum was what led, right? I mean, if you really think about the, the, the monopolies that were created during the Industrial Revolution um, and that were driven, like our boy um, uh, Rockefeller was an absolute tyrant. And if you read any stories of what he did, he would take small time um, refineries and he would literally say, you're giving me the business for this price or I'll put you out of business, right? Like he was ruthless. And, and capitalism supported that without government regulation until the 20s until finally people were like, hey, wait a minute. This isn't beneficial to everybody. And so then from the mid-20s up until I don't know, the 80s, early 80s, it was it shifted to this idea that capitalism can raise all votes. But I think we're back in this in this tug of war again where the, you know the, the early concept of capitalism for you know win, uh, win, uh, zero sum versus rise almost is really in a battle right now, and I think we're seeing that. What do you think? Well, I think that the concept of a monopoly uh, needs to be reexamined um, because a lot of these products are free, um, so they dominate in a way that's different than the robber barons dominated. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, I think innovation is a great disruptor and sort of breaker down, uh, a breaker up of, of these monopolies. I like the market stepping, like the market doing that job, but um, some regulation, we need to consider it, right, in general. I think that um, you need thoughtful regulation to promote positive outcomes. Unbridled capitalism is, is not good. Right. I don't think anyone would, I think few people, there, there are some people I'm sure believe, but would say that like the antitrust laws are put in place at that point to be repealed. I think most people agree that, that 
things are better now and more fair. But I think also the idea that you can start from the bottom and get up. Like I said, like a lot of people saw a movie, they looked at us, they judge a book by its cover. Um, <laughs> our family is very much um, uh, represents the American dream. They came over here. My dad's side came over here in 1862. Um, they were coal miners, farmers, um, and a few generations later, um, you know, had some success as entrepreneurs and got out of the coal mine. Um, and you know, we went to Harvard. And Wait, your dad's dad came here in 1862. Your dad's grandfather. So um, our dad's really old. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a vampire. Um, but, um, <laughs> So I think our... So your dad's grandfather came in 1862. I think that's right. Actually, I think his great-grandfather. His great-grandfather. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so I love that. I love that. And just because I can do this to piss a lot of people off, you know where... You know where well, I'm half, I'm half German and half black. You know where my... And my dad was black. Do you know where my dad's great-great-grandfather was in 1862? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> he was great like a motherfucker that the North won the Civil Wars to get his ass up out of Mississippi or whatever the fuck he was. So it's interesting to follow these lines of, of, of whatchamacallit, right? But right, keep, keep going because we're talking about this transition, but keep going. Right. So um, I think that largely in the long term, if you work hard in America, you can, you can go rags to riches. We have that story. And the capitalist system makes that possible. Yeah, I agree. Full on. And I, and I think that is um, one of the great traits for me that I think is so important is that whoever's up top, there's no guarantee that you're going to stay there. And if you're down here, it can rotate. Yes, but, it's, but that's my point. It's changing, right? It's more. So I believe that. OK, let's just take all the, the U.S. bullshit out of it, whether, you know, women and blacks and minorities and all that back in the 50s. They couldn't do it. But let's just say in the modern era, right, since let's say 1880s, I think 1985 was fairly equal. OK, whatever. It's it's once people get there, there's so much resources. But depending on how you define, they don't stay there. More people can come up. I mean, Zuckerberg's an example. And so is um, uh, your boy. Uh, uh, Bezos and, and you know, right. they, they, they started. They were privileged at some level, right? They were able to go to go to school yes. and be able to do their homework to get into Princeton or Harvard. But if you look at the big names of the Robert Barons, they don't dominate business today. No, um, they are names. They are names, right? Their their names are on buildings like Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, uh, Carnegie. They to work, and they got, they got generations of people that are trying to keep afloat with that money. But let's look at the Waltons, for instance. For a lot of times, those generate, and, and this is not like, I'm not being sympathetic for them, but um, you can't be, we can the, the, um, when you start doing the math, um, it splits up really quickly. Yep. Um, and a lot of times, um, the the generations, if they haven't, like, you know, been successful the same way, they can't handle the things they get. So they give it to a museum, like the Gold Coast. You see some of these, like, mansions that are now museums because you can't afford to keep them up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think this idea that like you can't keep, I mean, you have to keep succeeding. We, we grew up um, in Greenwich Privilege, but everybody had a lot and we didn't feel like we could rest on our laurels. Um, and so we wanted to be, you know, cut our own path and, and, and do that. But, um, you know, I think that, look, the people who dominate 
the business I want today are, are largely not the same thing that did, you know, a generation before. Bezos, Zuckerberg. We, can, yeah, we can debate. Look, I'm a capitalist, right? Like we can debate the, the whole capitalism thing. What I can tell you is this. It took your dad, I'm sure your dad has brothers and sisters, right? Mm-hmm. And then his mother and father had brothers and sisters, right? Not all of them were as successful as your dad, right? So they started as coal mines, great story, but not all of them were super successful, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so so we're out, my brother and sister, I, I haven't seen my brother in 10 years, I don't even know if he's still alive, to be perfectly honest with you. It's kind of sad, he's dead, I feel bad, because um, nobody knows. If he is alive, I hope he's doing okay. So he's doing okay. So Derek, you ever hear this? You're okay. Tell someone you're okay. My sister, great girl, but she's middle of marriage, middle of America, right? So what I learned is my dad was the only one in his family who went to college. And he did well. His whole family did well. But he did well early on. He just became a psychotherapist. He taught me a lot of stuff and created a life for me that gave me opportunity, which I capitalized on. And now that opportunity that I capitalized on, I'm giving to my daughters. Right. My daughters have access to things that will increase the probability that they're successful that, that to leverage the capitalism that their cousins don't have, right? And so I'm not saying, and I don't believe that capitalism is bad, but it's just imagination, but I get frustrated when people try to argue we all have an even chance. Some asset like me had to push through, right, from down here and then made it easier for my daughters. Now, one of my daughters may be dumb enough to not capitalize on it and go back down, but the other two may build on that, and then they build on that, and eventually they come back over generations. But the advantages that my kids have, my youngest wants to go to the Olympics in mobile skiing, right? I have all, you know how much money I'm paying in camps and, and equipment and trainers? That this is not a plan. If she makes it, I mean, I'm not saying she's going to, she's going to, if she makes it, I promise you it's her hard work. But if she was born to a poor to low middle class family, that doesn't happen. Yeah. No, look, this, the system is far from perfect. Um, I think it does it right better than any other system I can think of. Yes. But it's not a huge problem. Like, okay, so take cryptocurrency. I'm sure we'll get into that later. No, good transition. Keep going, baby. Finance, engineering. These are male-dominated uh, pursuits and largely white male-dominated. Um, if you look at the, the sort of the first tech boom and who got really wealthy and rich, um, it was a very non-diverse looking group. Um, and we need to fix that in, in you know, these traditionally male-dominated things. And I think it starts, it's got to start everywhere, right? We've got to encourage um, women uh, to look at engineering uh, as a career path early on in school and not be afraid of that. Um, and I think it's not just a, a, a male, female, like also, you know, different underprivileged people, right, to, to take computer science and all these things. So um, we need to get better. And these industries need to look more like the country. And that's that's for sure. It's exposure and access. Like literally, if it's exposure and access. You know, you read, oh, I forget the name of the book. Uh, outliers, right? If you read Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell talks about how um, Jobs and Bill Gates and a couple other people were born at a specific time that allowed them access at the right time to leverage that stuff. He said that had Bill been born five years earlier, he then he wouldn't have been exposed to this um, computer lab at his mom's 
work, the University of Michigan or the University of Seattle, whatever it was, and if we wouldn't have got exposed to that, and if we wouldn't have done the code, and you wouldn't have done, you wouldn't have done. Well, if you're a poor person, you're exposed to very much. I got exposed to um, basic coding, which in hindsight, I wish I had done more with. I thought it was cool. When I went to private school, my, my dad paid for, I was adopted by a white family, FYI. So my dad sent me to a boarding school, I got exposed to, to, to coding. Had I picked up on that coding and crushed it, had I been born to, I mean, had I been raised by my natural father, I was born in 38 and was lucky to be alive when he had me, I wouldn't have been exposed to that, which means my life would have had a very, you know what I'm saying? So I think it's about exposure, exposing people to the things that would say, oh, wow, there's more than just my little world. There's more than this trailer park. There's more than this hood. Right. And, and, and we, are, um, our dad's an entrepreneur. Um, and so we grew up around that around risk-taking, around that type of like art form, if you will. And so things that uh, come absolutely second nature to us, we can totally take for granted granted because of that environment. Um, and like I said before, my dad was a doctor. I would know things that I don't know today. And it would be so obvious and it'd be so ingrained because that osmosis of being that environment around someone who had that type of expertise would just give me an advantage. Um, so sometimes it's just like literally what your parents might do that makes things easier. Um, but then again, like there's examples where like uh, Zuckerberg's parents are, uh, I think his dad's a dentist. Yep. And I think maybe his mom is too, uh, which is very different than what he does today. So it's possible to, um, you know, but his parents bought him a computer which allowed him to get excited and curious about computers. Um, so absolutely, like we all um, get certain breaks that are, that are very helpful. Um, it's really hard to know which ones, you know, we also, we grew up with a lot of kids who, whose parents were incredible business people and super successful and they didn't rub off on no, the kids. No, they didn't rub off and they fucking um, They didn't have the work ethic. Yep. And then there's another kid whose parents are just as successful and they work like they have nothing. Yep. Um, so it's really, um, you know, I think it's a lot of it's like nurturing and, you know, some parents do do a better job at it than others. But so if, if Mozart was born today, I mean, he probably wouldn't be composing concertos, but, but would we know who he is? How would That's that? a great question. You know, I think Gates... Right. hit the sweet spot for building an operating system that took over the world, but would he be doing something else? Um, I think likely. Also, uh, Mozart's father was a great musician himself. Um, so that, I mean, yeah, a lot of the greatest musicians, their fathers were musicians that couldn't quite make it. I like Eddie Van Halen uh, wasn't his Yeah, father. like his father was a trumpet player. Lean in, Cameron. We can't see you, baby. Come on, see that. Yeah. It's all we can pretend. Yeah. A lot of great musicians, like one of their parents were, you know, a piano teacher. Like Randy Rhodes's uh, mom was a piano teacher, right, at a school in England. And he was Ozzy's guitarist for, for many years and wrote some of the greatest rock songs ever. You see that a lot with the parents and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think you guys are right. Like, like if I, if, okay, I'm 14, I'm too old now. Well, okay, I shouldn't say it. Maybe it'll surprise me. But if I could have ever found myself in, in my shoe, in shoes like Bill Gates or or Bezos or even um, our boy um, who I love to death, who I will get on the show and beat someday, um, um, Virgin Airlines, right? Great. Yeah. Um, I, I want to do what they're doing. I want to change the world. 
Like I, I want to starting with, the, with this country. I want to change the world. And I believe there's two ways that I would do that. One is exposure. I'm going to build campaigns and I'm going to fund things, at least from education and, and, and uh, upward mobility, mobility, right? I'm talking that. I love what Bill Gates is doing with other things. But I want to talk about upward mobility in the United States or other places. It's about exposure. I want to create as many programs that allows people to be exposed to things they're not exposed to now. Because I have always said the greatest gift, the greatest gift a human can be given isn't the internal gifts they're given. Because I believe everybody is given some type of gift. I really do believe that, right? I, but I don't think that's the truly greatest gift. The greatest gift is actually finding it. Mm. It's actually finding it. So I always say, what if Tiger Woods had not been born to his dad and his dad was a basketball player? Would Tiger have found golf? Right? It's a, yeah. Right? You're like a concerto pianist, and I have no idea because I don't play piano, nor my family plays piano, and I never put her in front of the piano, right? So that's the gift. So the more we can expose kids, think about how many scientists that could have found the cure to cancer are living in a in a trailer park right now, never exposed to anything in the world of science that got their attention. How many kids are sitting in the hood right now who could have, let's say, coded the next, I don't know, who could drive nanotechnology, but never exposed to anything. So our ability to expose kids to as many things as possible so that one kid who didn't think they had that talent had that thing, like, bam, like, bam, match. Yeah, allowing people to find their authentic self, I think, is basically what you're getting at. And most people are pulled away from it and never see it. They're, they're, you know, the world tells them that they shouldn't be that person. Yeah. Uh, they shame them, wh whatever it is, and they don't find it or they take years and years, decades to find it, which is really horrible. And then to your point, there's a lot of people that are trapped in a poverty cycle yeah. or in the criminal system or wherever. And they can't get out of that. And one of the things that we love so much about cryptocurrency is it's the one technology that could potentially bank the unbanked. There's a billion people or more around the world who don't have a bank account. Okay, talking about that, let's move into crypto because you guys, I love the story. You guys are pissed off, dejected. You can use your own words. You finally get out of this long um, protracted fucking court case. You get $63 million in, in stock or, I don't know, 12, 20, 80% of that. So I don't know, 50 million, what the dumb number is. And you're geniuses, by the way. You say, fuck that. I want stock. Good for you. This, this is what I like about this. You guys weren't so mad that you were stupid. Like, I don't want any part of this stupid business. You're like, oh, I don't like the guy, but I'm going to ride his coattails, right? That was smart. The lawyers getting the seatbelt and then deciding, oh, I'm not going to use the seatbelt when I drive a car. Yes, right? yes. It was never about the seatbelt. It was about it was about the behavior of an individual. Yes, yes, you, yes. You, the lawyers, your lawyers were dumb enough, dumbasses. That's why the lawyers, right? So, anyways, um, you take this, you're parting your ass up in a visa, which I would have done as well. And some cat comes up to you and he's like, "Yo, dog, you got to check this out," and you listen. Yeah, I mean, at the time we were on vacation, we weren't really looking for the next big thing, but we had left rowing at that time, training for the Olympics, we had retired, and we were just open to new stuff. Um, and one of the values at Gemini, which as you can see, Tyler's wearing the Gemini shirt, that's our cryptocurrency exchange, is beginner's mind, sort of an openness to new things. And a lot of people don't have that, they get like calcified whether it's through their experience of life or whatever, they just sort of close down and get set in their ways. 
Um, and a lot of people aren't, at least in you know 2012, when we first heard about Bitcoin, they weren't open to virtual currency or this whole new color of a potential financial system. But we were at the time. We didn't really have preconceived notions. And we're like, this sounds kind of interesting. Um, we started reading and digging into it. And we're just like, I think at one point I was like, this is either complete bullshit or the next big thing. It's it's as big as the internet wave or bigger. Um, it's literally the internet of money, internet of money. And that was kind of this aha moment. We were sitting around a table and we're like, we have to be in this. We have like, whether we're investing or building a company or something, we have to be in the middle of this wave because it's a generational thing and, and it may not come around for another 25, 25, 50 years. It's sort of like the, the dot-com bubble. If you were there in Silicon Valley, you probably did really well if you weren't an asshole. Um, <laughs> well, you were an asshole, you did kind of well. But like, and that was kind of in 2012 and fast forward, we're, we're um, you know, eight years later, it's still so early. People still think, oh, is it kind of late? I'm like, are you kidding me? We're in like the first inning of the baseball game here. So yeah, we, we found it on, on vacation. We were just sort of open to this, this new idea and this money that literally worked like email. And when you sort of looked at how payments worked on the internet, so I don't know if you remember eBay back in the day. I like, I'm big on it, like a dumbass. I thought it would set pricing. I thought they right? would default to setting pricing because... You know, people would auction and start telling what people really thought rather than arbitrary. So I bet big on it. Didn't lose, but didn't win. So like eBay was a super cool platform. One of the first like use cases of the modern internet. And I remember buying stuff on it. And the way you'd what, send what payment. What you buy, like a Nintendo? I was buying like a Nintendo, Lego, Lego. Just I, I bought an original Nintendo in college. <laughs> yeah. Just like I fun, play Con, you know? fun stuff. Um, no like real commercial, just hobby, you know, fun. Yeah. But the way I sent a lot of my early payments was through the post office money orders. Yep. So the post office, you give them a hundred bucks or whatever it is, they give you a slip, you mail it. And then PayPal came around and I was like, that is so much better. But really it's kind of like taking credit cards and using the existing system. It's not really payments on the internet. It's using this legacy system to send payments. And that system is like nine to five and credit cards were built in the 1950s. It hasn't changed for... For decades. So when we saw Bitcoin and we were like sitting in a visa and saying, you know, we can send, you know, value to anywhere in the world, essentially for free, any amount anywhere in the world for free. That was just like, like you sent an email. Right. That yeah. was my. Yeah. Now, do you still do you still hold on to that? Because it's feeling like and looking like that Bitcoin is really kind of changing from an idea of a currency where you can send that money to anybody to more of a. Um, uh, a monetary standard, for lack of a better word. I'm not that much of an economist, but the idea, like more like gold and less like money. You're you're totally right. We think of it as a store of value, um, like digital gold, and it's where you store value. It's fixed supply. So we think of it as the internet's gold or the reserve currency of the internet. Internet. It's probably not the best for high velocity transactions and moving money really quickly. Um, but it's the first iteration. It's what sort of set everything in crypto off in motion, right? So one way, like we think of it as gold 2.0. So whatever makes gold valuable, if you try to re-engineer that, but make it better, uh, that's what Bitcoin is. So gold is scarce, 
there's still more gold supply being created when they mine better. Uh, Bitcoin's actually supply is fixed. Yeah. Um, you can carry a bar of gold, but you can actually send Bitcoin like email. So it's more portable. Um, and the physicality of gold is actually more of a bug, not a feature. Um, you know, it's like the diehard problem. You got to, if you want to steal all the gold out of the head reserve in New York, you need like dump trucks, like yeah. many of them. And then you got to get those dump trucks over bridges. And then the gold on the planes is very hard to like steal billions of dollars of gold. But with Bitcoin, you can carry billions of dollars literally in a USB card or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's like the gold of the internet. And that's a pretty big idea. Um, so and I think, I think it disrupts gold. Right. And so gold is a market cap today of seven trillion. Bitcoin, I'll have to pull it up, but it's maybe let's call it like 150, 200 billion. Um, we think Bitcoin will disrupt gold. Um, we think it's better at being gold than gold. And so its market cap should be the market cap of, of gold or more. As long so, as, as long as the internet remains. So, right. so right. if there is complete, you know, global, you know, we got, we got much bigger problems, but yes, uh, there'll be a new currency. But yes, okay. If, if no can't access social media, they might just self. Most people will self-destruct. <laughs> but so um, our thesis is that um, so we take a gold framework thesis, and we think that Bitcoin disrupts gold. We think it's so as of today, it could go up uh, thirty or forty times, and it could be a heavily under. Uh, valued asset. So, and that's that Bitcoin's just being a better gold. You don't use gold to buy your cup of coffee. It's a store of value. It's, it can be used as a currency. It was before we came up with paper currency and fiat currency. Um, but today, largely, it's not used as a currency. And the same is true for Bitcoin. It doesn't need to be used as a currency or a currency to actually have tremendous value. Um, it just needs to be better than gold. Um, so that, that's that's kind of how we think of it. And when we got into this game, um, there was only Bitcoin. Um, we bought a lot of Bitcoin or Bitcoin on a box. Uh, it was crazy. We put wire wire money overseas um, to this exchange in, in Japan, which um, was a pivot from a magic online gathering exchange. So it's a really scary thing. And you know, now let's, let's, let's keep this real. Now you bought eleven million dollars worth of Bitcoin. magic cards. What? Of magic cards? No, like yeah, 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 yeah. It's almost like a magic card. The infrastructure was used to sell magic cards prior, prior to us buying Bitcoin to show you how early it was, and that's why we built Gemini to build like a regulated platform for people to feel safe to come in and buy Bitcoin and stuff like that. But um. You know, Bitcoin's like essentially, it's like a money network. Um, as more people get Bitcoin and send it and receive it and that, that ability, it's it's really powerful and, and viral. We think it's more powerful than social networks. When we remember in early 2000s, people were like, oh, social networks are like a waste of time. It's where people procrastinate. These things will never, they're a fad. They'll never really be important. We were just sitting there thinking like, People have no idea what they're talking about. They don't have beginner's mind. They're, they're saying, you know, they're seeing it one way and not, you know, the potential. So we're super bullish on this network. Cryptocurrency. What's, the point? What's the tipping point? So you had the big run. A bunch of speculators got in, got you to 20K. Yeah, right now it's back down to 8382, 
right? What's the tipping point? Hard to predict. I mean, it could be something macro um, in the role. It could be some kind of shock. I remember in, in 2013, 14, there was a bail-in in Cyprus. That was an inflection point, tipping point at that time, pushing the value of Bitcoin from a market cap, a total market cap of about $100 million into, I think, a billion-dollar market cap. So one two-hundredth of where it is today. Um, it's hard to say that Libra was an interesting development uh, this spring. It really pushed the conversation forward once Facebook entered the game and people were like, wait a second, the biggest network in the world. Yeah, and one you of believe the- that? You, that beat them. Like, this motherfucker's coming at you again, right? You must have thought, Jesus, this dude does not let us alone. Yeah, so Libra's definitely different than Bitcoin. And we would actually potentially look at trading something like Libra on the Gemini Exchange, um, incidentally. But it pushed that whole conversation forward. People were like, wait a second. Okay, let's, let's look at the merits of, of this crypto thing again. Uh, so that was interesting, and I don't think a ton of people totally necessarily predicted that. They necessarily predicted that. But doesn't, um, that, create, but doesn't that send us? Doesn't that create more of the tension, right? So you're arguing, and I think I'm in your camp, that Bitcoin is a store of currency or store of value, right? But if, if Facebook launches this shit, they're launching it as a currency, right? You can really, you really can't have, you know, Facebook shit and Zcash and blah blah blah, blah, blah and all these stores of currency, right? It, that I mean, I mean, unless we think you can't, right? Because today you have US dollar, you have euros, you have all these government currencies, uh, you have gold. You know, the dollar doesn't kill gold or. Yeah, I can take the dollar and go buy something. People aren't really still buying stuff with with crypto, but then Facebook has tried. So that's sort of my point. The currency is one side of it the yen, the dollar, the front, the other, right? The store of value is the other side platinum, gold, silver, right? And so it feels like you're sort of struggling in that realm. Like some people are trying to push the idea of, of cryptocurrency into the, into the area of, of currency, right? Facebook, use it for us. I don't know if Uber, anybody's come up, buy, buy your, you know, buy, pay for your, your car with it, et cetera. Well, Bitcoin's over here. And you guys say, no, 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 fuck my shit with it. It's just going to be a store goal. I mean, store value. Well, I think the future is going to be a, a, a host of assets, right? You know, art. Some people see art as an asset. You have, gold, you, have, you, know, you have commodities, you have government currencies, you have private, you have companies' uh, equity, right? So you have all these different assets. You have a share of Apple, you have your gold. Uh, you know, Bitcoin can live side by side with Libra, with Ether, with Zcash. Um, I don't think one is going to solve it all, at least right anytime soon. Um, we may not need a thousand cryptocurrencies. But there's probably um, a handful that that are fighting for different um, problem spaces and trying to solve different problems. And it's hard to be everything to everyone. Um, There may be one that actually acts like a currency currency. Um, I'm not sure if you need more than one major sort of value, like, um, but you could sort of sort of argue that, okay, you have gold, silver, maybe you have Bitcoin, Litecoin. Um, and maybe Zcash because it's the the, the privacy enhancing um, version of, of Bitcoin. So, um, you know, the world we live in today um, is not just one asset, right? It was, um, and money has been this uh, experiment for thousands of years. Um, it didn't start off actually as gold, like shells and yeah. Uh, if you, 
if you're in prison, cigarettes will, you know, make do as, as a type of currency. Um, you know, so it can be many things. And it's been this experiment that's been evolving over time. There is gold and then there's paper money and there's paper money back to, to uh, precious metal. And then it's, you know, Bretton Woods and it's not that. Um, so I think it's just this constant experiment that will keep going on. Cryptocurrency is this new iteration on it. Uh, there's no centralized, you know, government or issuer. It's this decentralized, immutable, uh, digital ledger. And I guess that's what's so interesting about this life. To us, it's like so inevitable. Like this was always going to happen because it's always been happening. Since the invention of money itself, we had a system of barter. And that didn't really work because how do you trade a half a cow, like a dead, you know, for for like all this corn? You got to bring all this heavy stuff to the market and then you could get robbed in the way of the market. So it's like, why don't we just, you know, invent this thing called money that allows these trades that otherwise wouldn't happen to happen? It solved what economists call the coincidence of wants dilemma. And so money is invented, but it's been people have been, um, in or iterating and on for forever. So it's like, um, did we actually think that that those iterations are going to stop? I think there's a story. I don't know if it's in like a, a, a myth, but the U.S. Patent Office uh, closed down at one point because they they thought like every possible invention that could have been invented or thought of. Yes, in the nineteen in early nineteen hundreds, they said everything that could be invented has already been invented. I just heard that the other day. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they shut it down. Like that, that to me is like the same, like the same argument. It's like, oh, money, like the money we have today is going to be the money we're going to have tomorrow. It's like as silly as the patent office closing down because every idea that is worth thinking mm -hmm. of or patenting has already been thought of. Um, so, so we thought this, I don't know. Yeah, like, no, I mean, I totally agree. It's like a failure of imagination. People just get calcified and they're like, oh, well, and in the first world, look, credit cards and our money works pretty good. I mean, talking about like advantages, like being born in America, that's a huge advantage. Yeah. Uh, there's a billion plus people around the world who have no access to a bank, financial services, money. But crypto with a smartphone, you can start storing and sending value, which is huge. Um, and to plug, our plugs lab. Uh, you, like a you can uh, you can get the the download the Gemini app uh, on your phone and you can onboard in two minutes and then become part of. I'm doing uh, it. I make I, I buy you guys. I buy crypto every single day. Every right. single day at the same time. Every day. Are you, doing, are you doing the recurring buys or? Yeah. Right. Hey, I'm the one, where where's my love? I'm the one who found the freaking bug in your recurring app. Yeah. yeah. You're you're like a QA engineer. Yes. <laughs> what am I getting for that? Come on. You're the Meredith. Uh, Gemini engineer, but uh, yeah, and there's like there's tens of millions of people in this country alone who are underbanked. That's why the Square Cash app is so popular. It's been, I think, listed in something like 50 different rap songs. It's a very popular like app for people who can't get access to traditional banking services. Traditional banking services. So Square and mobile apps like that are solving problems. It's not the JP Morgans of the world. And they're not gonna be building bank branches in these developing parts of the world. If, they're, if they could, they would already be there.
Do you remember long distance telephone calls? Yeah, Sprint, man. Of course I do. You're, you're I forgot. Yeah, dude, I'm all this dirt. Well, like, why did that, um, why doesn't that exist anymore? Because of mobile phones. Right. Mobile phones and voice now travels over the internet. Yeah, it's digital. Right? And that, that's what crypto is doing to money. Okay. So I, I got it. I'm in. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. Look, I'm sold. I'm buying it. Right. I mean, I, 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 I don't think I'm not convinced like anything else. So there's some risk that over time, it's a long game and the long game is going to pay or it's not. I'm not too worried about the, the, the weekly or daily swings, but it's still going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Right. I mean, does gold want to be replaced? Some of the big values of things that you know store value are the whole idea that if the whole world shifts to bed, I still have something of value, right? Well, if the whole world shifts to bed, is there still an internet? And if there isn't an internet, then I my cryptos isn't worth shit. But I got that gold, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. yeah, there's like internet satellites uh, circling the, the the world, and I think Elon Musk is trying to put you know more satellites into space and low orbit internet and stuff like that. People are trying to put blockchains up in space on satellites. So, so no matter what happens, if we're, yeah, in, if we're living like, the world, like still, yeah, the world might go to hell in a handbasket, and we'll still have like the Bitcoin blockchain. As long as power. Oh, I, like yeah. I like it. I like it. I like it. All right. So besides Gemini, besides Bitcoin, you guys have another passion: skiing. Oh, yeah, skiing. That's how we met. Can't right. wait. For yeah, so we we rode for 15 years um, from about 15 to 30. And at the time we stopped rowing, we had rowing had been in our life more years than it had not. Uh, mm-hmm. So we did that for a long time. Um, so mobile seeing sort of like a way, sort of like a way to you know take that energy and, and find something else that we're getting better at and not only getting worse at. You guys are making <laughs> really amazing improvements, by the way. Amazing improvements. we got to catch up to you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm not going to let that happen. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's, been, it's been a great. Like, I think sport is, is such a metaphor for life. Um, and it's such a great teacher. Um, whether it's mogul skiing, trying to get better, run a marathon, uh, rowing, you know, testing yourself mentally, physically. Um, you don't become good at any of this stuff overnight. Um, I think we live in a culture, it's like, oh wait, like overnight success, Cinderella story. And that's just in the movies. Um, and so like coming from a really bad made a big change over months, like a year or two, you like become a different athlete. So when you start a company and you realize like it's gonna take five or 10 years, you're like, of course. Like, cause I couldn't get there. You know, there's no corner cutting or quick fixes or becoming like a champion athlete, um, a great skier or whatever, um, you know, overnight or in a week. But, so why, I, but why mobile ski? Why did you pick that one? A lot of shit you could have picked. So something like when you watch someone come down uh, a mobile field and do it well, to me, it's so like pleasing to the eye. You've got like the, the upper body is basically still, and then you got these legs just moving. It's just I don't know. It looks really awesome, and like I guess we, it's we sick, see, it's sick yeah. right? And we used to see videos of like hot doggers, and you're like, those guys are amazing. Like they're right. growing up, like, they were like the best skiers in the mountain. You wanted to be like that. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Like, look, we also um, have gotten back into surfing. We love surfing, love the water, the beach. Um, I, I find like the mountain environment or the beach are like the coolest nature, like the energy. Yeah. And the camaraderie is pretty amazing. Like everyone's happy on a mountain. Everyone's like super stoked. Like they're yeah. stoked for you. Um, yeah. They're stoked for them. Like everyone's like having a great smiling. Um, and largely, I think of the beach when you're surfing, like people feel the same way. So to us, it it resonates on some visceral level. I think also like it's it's hard not to be present when you're on the, on the mountain. Like your phone is, you know, in your pocket. You're not really like if you're skiing, you're not like looking at other stuff or looking at emails and stuff like that. There's a social component. You're riding up the lift. But it's also a counterintuitive sport, which is kind of interesting. Like you get more control by leaning down the mountain. To become good at the moguls, you've got to become really good at turning on the flats, right? Go to the basics, get those basic things down, and then go try up a level in the mogul field. And it's the same thing with startups, right? Sometimes you just have to lean in and push through a tough spot. Um, and so I think that's a cool challenge. It yeah, reinforces like, like that life, those life lessons on the mountain over and over again. And there's days where I'm sure, you know, we've gone out and you're like, I should probably quit this sport. <laughs> like, I, I, I can't even put on my skis prop. Like this is, I'm going backwards. And then you have those moments, those breakthroughs, and you're just like, whoa, that was amazing. And that feeling when you put in the work and made the change and you get that, so... So you know our, our next guest in, on, on Keenan Live 2 is Mikhail Kingsbury, gold and silver medalist uh, at the Olympics for mobile skiing, and the, basically the Michael Jordan of mobile skiing. And what, we've been talking about innovation, we've been talking about capitalism and all this. You want to see innovation of progression, watch Jean-Luc Broussard, the first gold medal winner in 92, watch his run, then watch any run from Mikhail today, and Jean-Luc Broussard looks silly. Like, it, it, it's, it's like, it's not even in the ballpark. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is an example of how things have progressed and moved and changed and innovated and gotten way better. Well, yeah, and I think there's something about pioneering, right? Um, you, you cutting the path the first time is very different than coming in later. Mm -hmm. So, and you see this even in the sport of surfing, the type of aerials that the young kids are doing are so much more advanced than... Uh, the pro, the top pro surfers in the '90s. So, in a lot of sense, the athletes they are standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, they're pushing, yeah, um, and they're pushing, and they they're like, oh, that's something I have to have. That's a default trick. But one day that was like earth shattering. Yeah. Um, so, and it's going back to money. It's like, yeah, that's what crypto is doing. It's pulling money forward. It's it's modernizing it. And Mikhail has you know picked up the baton. And he's taking it to the next level. And that's what the, the future generation should always do. Right. I mean, if you look at like big wave surfing, they're like finding, there's like tone surfing now. So you can get like bigger yes. waves. You find like a wave at Nazare, Portugal. And Larry you're like, Hilton. I remember when Laird got crap because he put the, um, the little. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The well, you remember the movie? Um, he, he, the movie was either Riding Giants or Step in a Liquid in the early 2000s. Like everything he did that was like earth shattering in that movie, 
is now like you can go on YouTube and find like a hundred guys or Probably. girls. Yeah, but it's interesting. it's interesting to your point. I remember, and I'm just getting into surfing now, but I remember back then. Maybe it's my my personality trying to disrupt shit. All the like, trying to disrupt shit. All the people were um, trying to like say, well, he's ruining the sport. He's really not surfing. Putting those yeah. toe pieces on the surfboard, and now those clones realize you can't surf a 75 foot wave without the toe piece. Right. It was all about the tour. Like big wave surfing was yeah. like second place consolation if you can't do the tricks and hang with kelly slater oh you just go into big wave and now that's like it's a sport within a sport yes. and totally different but like speaking of sports like we so with rowing we we actually there was no rowing team on at our high school yeah we had a club like 30 minutes away and we basically built the program at our school and today in, in Greenwich, where the town we grew up in, there's hundreds of kids rowing every day. And it's like you can't conceive of a time where there wasn't rowing in Greenwich, which is super cool. Um, but like we joke that that was like our first startup, uh, creating the rowing team. Um, there's plenty of water and stuff there, but nobody had sort of asked the question, hey, why isn't there rowing here? Let's let's try this thing. Everybody go. And you should drive like 35 minutes or something to some beat up old freaking, yeah. right? Yeah, behind every, you know, Olympic rower, there's a very strong mom. <laughs> very committed and supporting. Yeah. It would have been so easy to be like, oh, yeah, like, wait, what does the school offer? Okay, we'll just take one of those. But um, I guess we're the guys who are crazy enough to be like, mm, I don't like that answer. I'm going to go out and build it for myself. And we effectively built a program so that we could become rowers and then became Olympians. And I think that's like sums up entrepreneurship, um, you know, and, and very much our journey is ask the question, not satisfied with the answer. All right, let's solve the problem. We try to do that with um, Bitcoin exchanges, couldn't find entrepreneurs doing the right way. Eventually said, screw it. We're just going to have to do this ourselves. And we've talked with, um, other entrepreneurs like Richard Branson, it's the same story. Just didn't like, you know, what he couldn't find the right option or, or whatnot. And um, it's usually built out of like a frustration. Or yeah, something. I, love, I love what you said. I think I'm going to make that t-shirt, right? I don't like that answer. Like, yeah. yeah. That's my favorite thing. I don't like yeah, that. You're going to do something about it. Well, yes, yes, yes. But that's, that's, that's the, like, that's the, the, the jumping off point. I don't like that answer. That, that's I, because I think someone. I think they're tied together. Someone may hear an answer and dismiss it, but when you get to the point is I don't like it. There is something inside of you that that is triggering, that then drives you to take action. Right? You have to. There actually has to be a place for that to land that says I don't like that. Based on what? Right? What I think it should be, how it should happen, what what I think you know what the world should look like. If you don't have that that should piece, then you can't really get to. I don't like that answer because you have nothing to bounce it off. Of. Yeah. Right. There's like there's a visceral reaction. Yes. Like, uh, an inability to accept like that answer, and I don't I don't know what the tricks Mikhail is doing today. I don't know what they're called, but there was a point where someone said, "You can't do that." Like the human body can't do a 720 inverted. I think it's for a cork. I think he's working on a cork. Um, it's not a cork 10, what is it? 7 to 10, 10, 80, 10, 80, 10, 80. I think he's working on a cork 10, 80. I think is what he's working on right now. 
Yeah. They're in the moguls going 25 miles an hour. It's insane. Crazy. All right. So I want to I ask one more question. I want to get personal for a second. I want to ask one more question. Um, you guys lost a sister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did that impact you? I lost a mom when I was younger. Um, and I was 25. So I wasn't younger, younger. And so over time, it's actually had more impact on me as it did when I was 25. At that age, where I'm like, ah, I'm fine. Yeah, it sucked. And I, you know, I was a, a blabbering, crying baby at her funeral. But I was already out of the house. You know what I'm saying? But as I get older and I look back on the influence that my mom had on me and and, and my, my mom on the sudden, she had diabetes, so I saw it coming. But I also got to learn what an amazing woman she was through all of that. And it it it, it has an impact on, on how I look at things, how I take on the world, and and, and regrets that I didn't do certain things with my mom, et cetera. Tell, tell me a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about, you know, losing your sister. And how do you think that impacted you guys? And, and how do you think that, if, it, if at all, you know, drove how you look at loyalty and your relationship with your family, et cetera? Yeah, it's definitely the the hardest thing that's ever happened to to me. Um, I think I can speak for for Cameron. Um, you know, we try and live our life in her honor uh, to the best we can. Um, life's not fair, and you're going to take hits. Um, you're going to have loss and grief, um, and we just try to keep we try to keep moving on and carry her. Uh, with us, it's never it never goes away. It can change a little bit, um, but it's super painful, and it's one of those things that no matter who you are, it's it's a normalizer. Um, you know, whether you have a lot of money, a little money, it's the same. Nothing insulates you from from that. The so this happened when we were in college, and then we went on to row in the Olympics. We actually named our boat the Amanda Jacine in her honor. And we had great games. We didn't medal but for first time, uh, our first international race in a two-man boat, um, our first race together at that level, we did quite well. And, and um, a part of us feels like she was there. Um, and so I, like that. I, I think about her often, um, even though she passed at 23, we were 20, she will always be our older sister. And I often think about her, like what she might think about this if I have a problem or, or just talk to her, you know, um, you know, we can all do that. You know, they don't, someone doesn't have to be here physically to, to be here. Um, and spirituality in that sense is definitely something I'm working on a lot uh, and, and thinking about and exploring at, at my age. I think, you know, when it first happened, it was like, let's got to keep going and, and, you know, growing and, and, um, she wouldn't want you to, you know, stop. I think now also it's sort of connecting with that part of yourself and that spirituality. So, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things that you never, you grow up and you never think like that. That's not going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen to my family. And, and then it, it does. And, and it's similar to probably uh, your own immortality. Like you think like you're immortal and then you get older and things happen and it's probably, you know, the brain changes a little bit. Uh, you have kids and you start to see the world differently. Are so, you have kids? Something you didn't tell me? No, no, no. Uh, uh, that's like a, a moment that, that changes your perspective. But 
but look, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm making sense. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's something. Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing that helps lessen the blow a little bit is just time and, and you know, uh, family and friends and support. Um, we were like 21, I think, um, and like you, we were young and it's like, okay, let's keep moving or whatever. We were young and it's like, okay, let's keep moving or whatever, you know. But I think as you get older, you try and continue to reflect on that and connect with that. Because she is such a big part of her life. I mean, we had the best big sister ever. Um, if you think we've got a couple of good ideas and a couple of things up our sleeve, I mean, she was super talented and awesome and a just a loving, great person. And um, and that's we'll, we'll carry that with us our whole lives. And and she sort of speaks through us. I think. Um, every minute of every day, you know. What I yeah, mean? I mean, people they they meet us and and. Uh, they expect that we have another sibling and we do. Um, she's passed on, but there's an energy where it's like, you got, it's not just you guys. Right. And that's kind of fun. Cause she's, she's, um, you know, there, there, but we, we were the runs growing up. <laughs> she, she was like so talented, um, star of the play, star athlete, incredible student. Um, you know, gorgeous on the outside, but even more so on the inside. Like she was grace personified, walk into a room, light it up. And she would treat everyone um, the same, which was so powerful, you know, to see that example. And I think it's very, very rare. So there's, I could go on forever um, uh, about her, but, um, you know, beautiful person and we miss her every day, but, but she's with us. Did that, so as a father of, a father, period, but I don't know boys, but as girls, so I guess it'd probably be the same. How, how did your mom and dad take it? Did it affect your relationship with them? Because, you know, I, I, look, I don't know about other parents, but, you know, every once in a while I get this, not fear, but I imagine, I think, God, what happens if I lost one of my kids? And I consider myself a pretty strong dude, but man, the first thought I have is mush. Like, if I had lost my daughter, any one of them, in a tragic sense, I'd be a freaking mush and I, I don't know how I'd be able to maintain the relationship with the other two and how I move on and and I, I just can't get my arms around that how, how did your parents get through that how did did it hurt them? like you know what I'm saying how about you guys with them all that yeah I mean I think in short it it brought us together um which was which was nice a nice reaction you know I think it's hard to know like uh but I think you know, there's no word for a parent losing a child, Ugh. at least in the English language, because it's so uh, unnatural and yeah. it's so not um, something that anyone should ever have to go through. I think in some ways it might be harder for a parent to lose a kid than than um, a, a sibling. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know, just try to try and stick together and, and get through it and realize that, like, enjoy it while we last while it lasts um but you know we have resilience like that's the thing about our family and i think that human beings have resilience uh they have the right support i think you have more resilience than than you think uh and when you're putting these kind of situations you're really tested but uh i have confidence that you and other people uh can rise to the the occasion and can move on we're we're sort of involved to have that strength. Um, but you need to have the support, uh, the spirituality, whatever it is. Um, 
you know, you need to reach out for help and and have that to, to get through because it's it's not something you 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 want to do alone. You know, we were we we were on uh, sports helped us so much. We were on we had team teammates, basically so. a family at the boathouse that was super helpful and supportive. So we could sort of slip back into that world, and we had you know, fifty plus teammates, amazing people who were supportive and and there through and through that was that was really helpful i think if we weren't on a team and uh at a different time in life it, it could have been a different you know we were very lucky to um yeah to have that support all of our teammates came to the funeral we got right back to training uh we went to england and raced that summer so um we were very fortunate to have incredible friends that are still friends to this day incredible coaches mentors um, all around us and, and all that love and support, um, that's what pulls you through it. Yeah. All right. It, it, it the whole thing creeps, freaks me out. Like I, yeah. I don't like to go there, but you can't help from go there. You know, in, in the weirdest words, worlds, uh, don't everybody get mad at me because they're all going to be mad at me. But I remember I wanted three kids. And the reason I wanted three kids, I felt two was too single threaded because I had, had a friend who had, had, he was one of four brothers. And by the time he was 35, two of them were already dead. Right? How tragic. And I remember thinking, oh my God, like I'm, the parents have got to be freaking out. But beyond that, imagine the parents only had two kids and they lost them both. So only had two kids and they lost them both. Like, so in my little warped mind, I wanted three kids just in case something happened to one. It wasn't just me and the one kid were all sitting around moping the idea <laughs> we lost half the family, right? So Hey, the whole concept, I, I just, I can't get around around it. I, I applaud you guys for, for coming together as a family because not all families do that. It tears families apart. You hear those stories, right? It actually does just the opposite. So I think one of the things I'm getting just in our conversation and, and again, you know, having known you guys and all this stuff is your family value system and, and who your parents are. Maybe we should get your parents on this show one of these days. <laughs> our fucking, it's just amazing. And and anybody that doesn't get the impact the parents have on children and how that is generational and cyclical is smoking crack. And how our system and systems, whether it be governmental, non-governmental, business, etc., can have a positive or negative impact in that cycle, which then drives out the very people who live in the society that we, that we need to rely on to make it a better place to live. Right. It's just it just reinforces that. Yeah, we're 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 social creatures and any anybody who thinks that they just exist in isolation or aren't a product of, of their you know environment or their past or their parents and their parents' parents is just is just are just fool, fooling themselves. I mean you, you said your your father was down south in the uh, the nineteenth century, like that has an impact, right? Yeah. Um, and that's not an impact just on him, but that's going to travel. There's a cycle. Um, and, and it sounds, I mean, I'm sure you've done a lot, you know, with that. And, and it sounds like you're in a really healthy spot, but like that's hard stuff to, to deal with and carry with. It is. All right, gentlemen, let's wrap this up because this has been dope. I, I really enjoyed this. Um, each of you, okay? Cameron first. What? Makes where, where are you most different from Tyler as far as you know, which he may not even think you know. Like where do you think you are the most different than Tyler? Tyler's here, your way over here. Like Tyler's a Trump fan, and you're a 
uh, Elizabeth Warren fan. Like, uh, right? Like, where, where are you two? Where do you believe you are way, way, way away from Tyler? And then Tyler, where do you think you're way, way away from Cameron? That's a great question. Um, Strength. Um, maybe we'll have to come back for another episode to answer that. Um, wow. We're very, like, not very different. Our values are, are super identical and aligned, and that's why we're a good team. And our goals sets and stuff, but, um, you know, we have different preferences. Sometimes the song's on the radio, and you may like it, I may not. Um, so, you know, that's why it works. He, he's left the I'm right. Um, what, about I mean, chicks? what about chicks? Does one of you like tattoo crazy chicks and the other one like all buttoned up girls, right? And then, like, is that a different place you differ? You like the same girls? I think similar type, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'd say guitars, like my playing guitar and Tyler playing the piano is probably like the biggest differentiator so far in the sense that I'm putting hours towards something that he kind of doesn't have much of a sense of like what I'm doing with my time. And the same is true a little bit with piano, though I did play piano growing up, but like those are pursuits that are sort of individualistic that he's not really part of and not really part of his journey on that. Whereas like skiing, we're kind of generally skiing the same mountain at the same time. So in the same um, skis, in the same skis. Skiing yeah. is where I'm a lot better. Ah! Over here, and he's like back here. Um, <laughs> am I, I going to see that this winter when we ski? Am I going to see you eat him up? You're going to yeah, see me eat I'm him up. smoking. Him. Oh, even better, even better, even even better. All right, listen, boys. No same ski bag. Yes, we, yeah, we we've, got, we've, we've we got different colors. Yeah, different colors. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. Hey, this was dope. I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Um. We will see each other on the hill. We got to figure out how to make that happen. First chair coming up. All right. Listen, guys, thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it. Um, everybody, thank you for listening. This was Keenan Live, where we talked to the interesting, the rebellious, and the successful. And I think we just saw why those three traits make us successful. All right, folks. Until next time, this was Keenan on Keenan Live. Thank you very much. You know what I'm going to say? Peace.